ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਇਪ ਸੋ ਓਬਵੀਅਸਲੀ ਲਾਸਟ ਵੀਕ ਵੀ ਡਿਸਕਸਡ ਦੈਟ ਵੀ ਵੁੱਡ ਬੀ ਡਿਸਕਸਿੰਗ ਪਾਈਥਾਰੂ ਸਿੰਘ ਦਿਸ ਕਮਿੰਗ ਐਪੀਸੋਡ this present episode at the moment however uh, some things have actually backtracked that uh program so we'll just uh, move on to current events at the moment so this is something we have been receiving quite a lot of requests for from a long time and i guess it's the israel palestine conflict and it seems that uh Sikhs are up in arm uh in arms about it as well i mean there is a split down here with 50% probably arguing a fee for the sake of argument take that it is a 50-50 divide which it might not be but it seems half are arguing that we have no dog in that fight and then half are arguing that there is a dog in the fight so it's become quite a critical debate and something which is beginning which will if it's not already beginning to polarize the community in the future as the community itself starts uh discussing its own uh, quest for sovereignty speaking territorially <clears throat> and i guess this is a conflict which is not really black and white is it no it, it cannot be uh because b- both okay there are two sides to the conflict there's the jewish side the israeli side and then there's the palestinian side yeah which are yes. largely largely muslim yes not 100% muslim largely muslim Yes. So for us to understand this conflict we have to go back all the way to like 2000 years ago when the let, let's say the Jews were expelled from that land which they considered to be their historical homeland. Yes, and I guess that's something which uh, the current uh, you can say the current discourse does not take into account now does it? I mean if you look at it from one aspect if you look at the Sikh situation down here we consider East and West Punjab as our homeland. we have ruled over you know significant portions of it and beyond so ultimately when the british actually you know divided india bifurcated it into pakistan and india we were left with a, what we say is more or less a i guess in a way a nominal provincial state rather than a you know territorial sovereign state and i guess are you know leaving the bigger words aside what the essence down here is that if tomorrow the sikhs were to acquire their own country let's say theoretically they get their own country they become you know sovereign territorially the fact is that surely i mean this is a hypo- hypothetical scenario down here but if you look at it from one other perspective the fact we talk about halemi raj or you know khalsa raj this might mean something to us but the you know brutal truth is it doesn't mean shit to anyone besides us you know so for sikhs it's a different picture for others it's a different picture and from the onset we can see that even when maharaja ranjit singh ruled over the punjab there were you know dominant hindu and muslim factions which opposed you know sikhs which opposed sikh sovereignty and they worked towards dismantling it and surely if we get our own country now that will be the same case as well except with the borders you know drawn it will be you know us versus the world and then we will have to protect our sovereignty because at the moment the discourse we have is that you know there is a side which argues that the palestinians need sovereignty okay so that's their argument and using that example they try justifying that you know sikhs need their own sovereignty they try you know drawing parallels between both peoples between both situations the fact is that has anyone ever thought beyond acquiring that sovereignty oh, oh, okay 
hold on. I'll, I'll give you a better example. Yep. I mean, this this is in light of the fact that, you know, it's not a the Israel-Palestine situation, even the Sikh situation, any other situation. It's not like a modern, uh, you know, it's not a modern event. It's not a modern element. There are historic roots going back. I mean, if you ask someone today, if you ask some of these Sikh activists today that what is the Israel-Palestine conflict and they will try uh, pointing out the Balfour Declaration and all the colonial era nuances, except if you ask an Israeli or if you ask a Palestinian, it's an altogether different story. They will point back to thousands of years of, you know, conflictual history. Yep. Uh, okay. If I read it correctly, uh, yep. Israel was formed in the year 1948. Yes. I'm not too sure what was the UN resolution at that time. Yep. But there's something called a two-state theory over there? Yes, yes, there was a dual state theory. So that was never implemented, if I'm correct. No, that was never implemented. I think it came to a point that it was never uh, found feasible to be implemented because, I mean, if you need to, we need to look at the historic, uh, you know, uh, events which actually derailed that theory. So on one side, you have Israel. On the other side, you have Jordan, you have Syria, you have uh, Egypt. And... All these states had, you know, their own dog in the fight. So, I mean, okay, let's give you a more convenient example, which we can understand. Now, you know, in the 80s, it's claimed that, you know, there is evidence that Pakistan supported the militants. Am I right? Militants were uh, in Punjab? Yes. Yeah, of course. Now, there are two angles to this theory down here, and we need to understand both of them. If we accept the first one that they did that out of the goodness of their heart or that they wanted some, you know, minor strategic uh, gains for themselves, that is our intellectual and political naivety. I would say we're very naive if we accept that argument. On the other hand, whenever we acquire help from, you know, a previous aggressor, now, if you look at Guru Gobind Singh, if you look at the historic uh, perspectives down here, Guru Hargobind and the Rajputs who he freed from Gwalior, the Gurus always kept the Sikhs prepared for eventual conflict with their own allies because they knew that those allies weren't helping the Sikhs out of the goodness of their hearts. And, I mean, if you look at it this way, Bahadur Shah aimed to utilize the Guru against his own opponents to finish off the Sikhs or enroll them into the state machinery which he had going on. The Guru saw this. Nonetheless, he fought off a few of Bahadur Shah's opponents to earn the Sikh some reprieve, allowing them the time to you know, consolidate their positions and prepare for conflict with Bahadur Shah himself. Same ground if he said that you know, Pakistan and all these exterior countries aided us, helped us, assisted us. Are we really sure that they did it out of the goodness of their hearts or were they trying to play off two factions against each other, two enemies, you know, Sikhs and the, you know, the rest of the subcontinent in a, you know, battle in which they would uh, emerge as victors because they were hoping to take out the competition straight away? Do you think there is such thing as, let's say, charity in politics? I don't think there is any charity in politics, any charity in society, or even any charity where military matters are concerned as well. We need to, it's usually the stab in the back which has the most deadliest effect rather than the stab from the front. Yeah, of course. 
we are six, we know that. We we know that. And I mean, okay, so getting back to the Israel-Palestine situation, it isn't as black and white as saying that, you know, we Sikhs want our own sovereign state and we spot the Palestinians. We really need to understand that we might find ourselves in the same situation as either of those two parties. True. And that's why this this, this issue is very relevant today for us. We, we need to keep a keen eye on it and how the world reacts to it. Who are the hmm. allies of Israel who are supposed which countries or which people are supporting the Palestinians. We need to learn from it. We need to learn from it. We also need to study whatever accords have been, you know, drawn up whatever treaties, whatever agreements have been proposed and why they have, you know, eventually ended up failing and who scuttled those talks, Palestinians or Israelites. You know, we need to keep everything in, I guess, close eye on everything. Close, uh, close eye and an open mind. And an open mind, open mind. I mean, obviously what's happening now, the conflict, I mean, in my eyes, rather than saying one side is doing it, because you know what the modern, uh, the current Sikh discourse seems to be that there is an armed state on one side and there is a, how would you say, a guerrilla entity on another side. So it seems to be some sort of, uh, you know, a memory association going on down here that, you know, guerrilla Sikhs took on mightiest empires of the world and defeated them or, you know, managed to somehow stall or fend off the annihilation of Sikhi. However, things are not as black and white. I mean, the first thing is in the modern atmosphere, in the current atmosphere, the guerrilla aspect of Sikh, you know, history has received quite a lot of uh, extensive exposure. You know, we go out, we are treated as warriors, as soldiers, but it's the guerrilla tactics which we are famed for, okay? But the thing is... On the other hand, we also need to remember we had several states. So we had the first Khalsa Republic, the nascent Khalsa Republic under Banda Singh Bahadur. Before that, the Gurus had their own political policies in their own states within states. So we had Banda Singh Bahadur afterwards. We had Nawab Kapar, Kapoor Singh afterwards. We had the missiles. We had Maharaja Ranjit Singh. So at times we were sovereign, but to protect our sovereignty, we were also aggressors. Well, that, that's the only way to protect your, your sovereignty. You don't become sovereign by, you know, behaving good. But, I mean, that's that's the thing. That's the thing. If you look at it. So, I mean, we also need to consider the fact from this day, we need to sort of consider the fact that, you know, even while the conflict, the, what the actions being carried out in the conflict have no justifications, the massacre of civilians, etc., the root of the conflict might be justified where Israel is concerned. Hmm. And, I mean, if you look at it on the other hand, Hamas, Yasser Arafat, and all these other groups, even the Jordanians expelled them in the, I think, around the mid-70s or late-70s. They had gotten so uh, fanatical when they were allowed to, you know, uh, strike a presidents in the Jordanian kingdom. Yep, I think that's back in the PLO days. PLO days. So now coming down to here, how we are treating it, how Sikhs are treating it, I think the best policy for Sikhs is to, you know, strike a policy of neutrality, you know, adopt a policy of being neutral, impartial in this entire matter. Well, hold on. Who are we to become neutral? We're not even a force? Well, I mean, as far as the individual group uh, activists' uh, efforts are being concerned down here, because, I mean, 
I've I've been seeing a lot of pictures, you know, Sikh sport, Palestine, Sikh sport, Israel, blah, 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 blah. I mean, well, what we are doing is we're just treading into a minefield down here, which even though the human factor is a cause for concern for ourselves, this is a situation which is far more deeper than we can understand. Well, for us, it is. I mean, it is. I mean, okay, so let's look at it this way. When Maharaja Ranjit Singh ascended, you know, the Punjab, when he became the emperor, and there was the Khalsa Empire, or Sarkare Khalsa, as he used to misnomer it. So there's Maharaja Ranjit Singh sitting on his throne, you know, oh, well, his seat, because he never officially adopted a throne. And he's ruling the Punjab. Now we have many rebellions occur against the states and, you know, from a occur against the Sikh states from, you know, Afghanistan. We have the Patans. We have, you know, many mercenaries, Islamic and Hindu, come to try, you know, destroy Punjab. The Sikhs fought back with great gusto and expanded their territorial domains into their territory. You know, that's why Hari Singh Narwa was in Afghanistan to consolidate Sikh territorial gains as well as keep a lid on the sentiments of the, you know, local uh, mutineers, local, you know, how would you say, um, how they would say it would be Mujahideen. But the thing is down here that, you know, in that context, how would we interpret that if that Sikh empire had lasted until today? And this war was still going on. How would we interpret it then? How would we justify our actions? We would surely say this is not a black and white issue. So then why is it that we make other conflicts a black and white issue? Maybe it's the lack of understanding. Or uh, I, I would say, this is going to be a bit of a harsh, but the lack of honesty. I think it might be either of those. But can you expand on that last one, the lack of honesty? You have to be really honest with what exactly do you understand from this conflict or any any conflict. You cannot mm. say that I understand the situation of Israelis, they are constantly under attack. Even even if they were not the aggressors, the, the fanatical Islamic uh, terrorists have a reason to kill the Jews because that's what's, you know, is being directed to them through, through their religious texts. Yep. So you could take one side and say innocent people are being killed in, uh, let's say, in Gaza. And yes. Say, I, I, w- I want to support them. So you're just you now trying to balance yourself on both sides. You're not being honest. Mm-hmm. You're looking at, a, I would say, a temporary resolution to the conflict, a temporary solution, rather than, you know, any long running solution, which even both, you know, which even, uh, you know, uh, let's say, how would you say, even the, you know, uh, the peace brigade on the Palestinian side and on the Israeli side, both of them have been unable to find in the last 80 years. And I'd like to add one more point to my last point about honesty. Yes. People look at Palestinians the way they look at themselves uh, as to what the Indian state did to us, the Israeli state is doing to the Palestinians. Yes. So this point is also to be considered here. I guess you can draw parallels between communities which have, you know, suffered or been, you know, de- uh, derived of their uh, political rights or their human rights. But the fact is that, you know, no two events, societies, communities, or, you know, proportions of history can ever be the same fundamentally. If you ask such a person that if you, if you were to live in Palestine, how would they treat you? What would, they, would be their answer? Mm-hmm. That's a that's a sensitive question, really, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's not a sensitive. Well, of course, sorry, it is a very sensitive question. But 
but it will confuse them because for them you're an infidel you you're not ahl al-kitab you're not a uh, uh, people of the book you're not in, uh, christian you're not jewish these kids predate islam hmm. so for you for them you'll always be an infidel but then if you look on the israeli side there is surely a sense of prejudice down there towards non-jews isn't there which has become more and more ratified since the right-wing conservatives have started you know taking care more and more than the left wing down there as well sense of prejudice you're putting it too lightly you're putting it too lightly but the fact is that when we start drawing parallels between ourselves and them i mean <clears throat> here is something which is very interesting uh dr sangat singh the historian sangat singh who wrote you know the sikhs in history which is a you know textbook type history which is still being reprinted over and over again every year now sangat singh died a long time back but he was you know quite a very intelligent individual he was actually in the intelligence department in india analyzing chinese war efforts against the subcontinent and sangat singh was lauded for his history now of course he gets a few things wrong in there which i do not agree with personally but that's our fundamental right to disagree with historians as well now something he points out in his other uh, essays and discourses which he gave regarding that book um i have one of the recordings is that <clears throat> we all know of master tarasing you know and he said that master tarasing was actually imprisoned in jail during the punjab you know suba agitation and in jail he actually r- read a whole uh, you know magazine article on how israel was formed and after that he actually requested that he be sent books on israeli history and when he actually came out of there he said that you know if he had known that there could be a minority state on the global you know political stage we would have actually fought for one for the sikhs during 1947 rather than suffer the humil- hum- humiliation we are coping at the hands of you know liberated india at the moment and what's actually happened is that you know someone at the time pointed out to him that you know the israelis were very smart they actually established a precedent rather than you know try copying something from history you know emulating something from history the sikhs can't do that because they always look towards a template to follow you know something else which has been done before so they can repeat it and i guess that's where the answer to your question lies as well that you know we never take any fundamental lessons from what has happened around us you know the lessons we should have been taking back then was that look the Jews were united they got together they you know militarily armed themselves and the biggest thing was that the Jewish leadership at the time knew that you know getting sovereignty wasn't the end of it David Ben Gurion the first uh, prime minister of Israel this is actually what he said the day it was announced that Israel has been you know recognized as an international state by the United Nations he actually declared that day that get ready for war and that's exactly what happened when Syria, Egypt and you know all these other countries ganged up on Israel's borders and that's when Israel started fighting back on a war footing now you compare that with the Sikhs and chances are we would have had a Sikh state overrun in 2 days by militaries of other nations who would not have been happy to see us independent we did we did uh, an episode about thought crimes and you're committing ton of them today tons of them and i mean it's it's the reality down here now the way i see it i can comprehend what the palestinians are facing but then on the other hand i can also comprehend what the israelis are confronting at the same time uh, okay uh from the israeli side uh, 
there is this let's say propaganda yeah. or this this propaganda that yeah. Palestinian people simply don't exist. Yes, that's right. That's right. That's uh, something you know Israel has been accused of in the past, and I mean. This is actually something which has, you know, the realization of this by Israelis and the fact that they're actually, uh, you know, there are liberal voices in Israel expressing discontent with this view, expressing pain that this view has been accepted in their society. It has come too late. I mean, you must have heard about uh, Ariel Sharon. The former prime minister. Yep. Now, what people don't know is that when he was young, Sharon was also the founder of the 101st unit, which became the, you know, highly feared uh, paratrooper unit in the Israeli armed forces. Yeah, it was copied from the American 101st Airborne Division. 101st Airborne Division. And if I remember correctly, Benjamin Netanyahu, who's the current Israeli prime minister, his brother was actually a leader in that division, the paratroop brigade, and he was actually killed during one of their uh, raids. And the thing with Sharon was that, you know, when Sharon was actually a general in the military, he had a very uh, controversial career. And what people don't know is that he was actually expelled from the unit he founded by the men who he trained himself. This came to, after the series uh, Kennel Affair, so they actually uh, had him expelled because they believed he didn't do his job properly. Anyway, his early policy was that, you know, the Palestinians do not exist, that Palestine does not exist as a territorial nation. What they say, what I've heard and what I've read, it's like, these are simply Jordanian people who just happen to be living here. Yeah, but I mean, the dismissal usually is that these are just Arabs but the fact is that towards the end of his life like in his last tenure as Prime Minister, Sharon actually realized that this you know long-held belief he had since the 1940s, the late 1940s was wrong but the damage had already been done He tried making amends for it in 2005. Do you remember when they actually decided, when Israel decided it would pull back the West Bank settlements, it would demolish all those settlements itself? The I think they, back, yep. in 2006, they had the Lebanon war. I think they withdrew from there in, in, at that time. Yes, but the backlash from within Israel itself was so intense that it was argued that Sharon could never survive a, you know, another term in politics. And then on the other hand, if you look at it, the Palestinians are no less. But we seem to be ignoring the ground political realities and choosing sides, which is to our detriment. I mean, if you take a look at the United Nations, you know, you've got so many able leaders down there, minus the fact that, you know, most of them seem to be doing nothing or their hands are tied by, you know, national policy. But the fact is that no one has openly espoused any of the two belligerents, have they? Uh, they cannot do it for political reasons. And that's the thing. And there is no easy resolution to this conflict. But the fact is that our, some individuals from our organizations believe that it's their God-given right to resolve this issue within their lifetimes. Isn't that so for everybody? 
it's it's so for everybody and we look at it from many perspectives we look at it from quite a lot of angles and the thing down here is that we should be taking lessons from this and i mean the fundamental lesson for me is that if there is ever a sikh state tomorrow do you really think we would not be at conflict with our neighbors <laughs> no i i can guarantee that we are going to be in conflict and i bet you i bet you that the first thing we would be doing is looking towards other nations for our own iron dome system Uh, I like to make a joke here, but I, I won't because that'd be too offensive. It would be, and I guess <laughs> some of these jokes can't be said in public space. But I guess that the, on on the other side of the fact, getting back to the you know seriousness, the gravity of the discussion, it seems really incomprehensible for our people when you argue that you know we have no dog in this fight. But on one hand, there is a country which feels that sovereignty is being threatened, and on the other, there seems to be a country. which is also claiming that its sovereignty is being threatened so that piece of land that's called israel today who really owns it and if you strip away the external factors you know the witnessable factors the observable factors like you know palestinians fighting and you know so and so fighting and so and so fighting what you really see the fundamental issue is two countries trying to exert their right over another okay i'm going to ask you uh yes. a complex question yes is it a religious war masquerading as a political war or a political war or political conflict masquerading as a religious conflict i think one thing we need to actually understand down here is that <clears throat> there are religious roots to this conflict and we can't ignore them yeah and the religious roots down here go back more than 2000 years i mean if you look at it from the early history of uh, islamic conquests were fundamentally directed against jews yep yep beheadings and all the massacre of the entire tribes and I guess where the Romans had a very strong deportation policy to grab them and evict Jews from their homeland, the Islamic caliphates had nothing similar, but they had very strong reasons, very strong uh, policies, which compelled the Jews to leave anyway. I, I think I'm and, not too, too not too clear about uh, about the demographics of the Jewish people. Let's say in the eighth or ninth ninth century. Yes. but i think that a very large number of jewish people were actually forced to convert yes there is that uh, there is that uh, reasoning as well because i mean if i remember correctly when israel was first established many of these individuals of arab and palestinian descendant they actually came back and uh, converted back to judaism saying that they'd only uh, adopted a mask during the islamic uh, rule mm mm-hmm. So on another issue I'd say the issue can be compared to the fact that if there is a Sikh state tomorrow many Muslims come back and convert to Sikhi again saying that you know and we know that many were forced to convert to Islam when a partition happened Yeah probably uh but but would you accept them 
I mean, if they want to come back to Sikhi, we would be more than happy to accept them if they renounce their own previous, you know, the faith they were forced to accept. But the entire Sikh history, for example, where people actually fought to ma maintain and retain their heritage, that's Sikhi. So if somebody chooses to convert, let's say, decides not to fight, say, okay, convert me, I want to live. I think the thing we need to consider down here is that not all people are the same. I mean, this was exactly the question which confronted the first Israeli government when these are, you know, Jews of, you can say, dubious origins were coming back and they decided to take the approach that, look, we need to boost our demography. So, yep, let's accept them back. OK, so the first generation can be cast aside, but their children need to have very strong values inculcated in them. You know, the belief in Judaism rather than Islam. And I guess that's what we would do in Sikhi as well. We would inculcate really strong Sikh values, wouldn't we? If you were to visit Pakistan today, hmm. and you went to Lahore or Nankana Sahib or wherever, and some, somebody came to you and said, okay, I'm, my grandparents or great-grandparents were Sikhs before 1947. In 1947, we quote-unquote embraced Islam. Would you yes. see them as victims or would you see them as cowards? Now, I, I ask this question because both you and I, our ancestry lies in Western Punjab. I would see it as a matter of being half and half, half cowardice and half victims. So if my family can choose to fight and survive, why couldn't they? That's right, but I guess we have to actually look at individual circumstances that, that these people have an escape avenue or how, you know, how strong was their connection to Sikhi? Okay, I think it, this might be going off the rails, but uh, okay. I'll give you a very small example to you. Yes. Uh, I, I think there was uh, there was some, some book. Uh, I can't remember the name of the, this, this particular story. Yes. This is about uh, a Second World War veteran Sikh soldier who actually goes back to Pakistan as, as a part of the, let's say, the government contingent to recover lost women. Yes. So he actually see, uh, goes there and he actually you know, tracks down many, bring, brings many back, Hindu and Sikh women. But this one particular woman, he say, he sees that she's got a little baby and she's pregnant with, with a second. Yeah. And she refuses to go back. He said, she, my entire family is killed. There's nobody I can go back to. I have a child here and I have another one on the way. But if you really want to help me, you could go to this village where the, my former sister-in-law, the sister of my ex-husband, when I was a Sikh, she's being held captive by this person in this village. If you, if you could return her back to me, I would like to marry her off as my own because she was the only family I have. So in this case, she's purely a victim, not a mm. coward. Yep. So I read that and I was like, damn, man. So you can hear stories that women were abducted, raped, and whatever, kept captive for decades. But, if, but when you read a real-life account, it, you know, it dawns upon you the horrors people had to go through. And they are currently going through in Israel and Palestine. I guess I'd like to say something here, but I will hold my tongue for propriety's sake. Anyhow, I was going to refer to some events which happened 30 years ago and which similar events were repeated with us. 
Okay, so however, getting back to the point at hand now, you know, obviously what you're saying is there's a strong victim down there. You know, she's still strong. The fact is that if those victims were to become leaders on both sides, what will we get? If, if I was an Israeli who's, who's, let's say, family member was murdered by the Palestinian terrorist, how would I treat them? That's what I'm asking. And if I was a Palestinian whose family was murdered for no reason by, you know, Israeli raids, Israeli raiders, soldiers, IDF, paratroopers, Mossad, how would I react? If you and I were sitting on, sitting on the same table on the opposite sides, would we be hmm. able to reach an agreement? And I guess that's the thing down here, because, I mean, this was something which was put to David Ben-Gurin down uh, when he was about to leave his ministry. And he said that, you know, the scenario is viable, but resolution is impossible. Because really, when you, when you try resolving issues, so there are victims trying to resolve issues, people who have suffered. But we need to remember that a mass majority have never suffered. Now, what makes the case for Israel so potent? Now, someone might say that, you know, at the moment, Netanyahu is overreacting, you know, that, you know, and some of these things do seem to be overkill, excessive overkill, you know, targeting, you know, buildings where civilians are living. And there doesn't, there seems to be a lack of substantial evidence being presented to the international community, you know, substantiating that these buildings actually are housing terrorists or, you know, resistance fighters. On the other hand, something we need to understand down here is that, you know, around Ariel Sharon's time when they had the Six-Day War, and, you know, when the Israeli Air Force actually uh, bombed the hell out of the Egyptian Air Force? Before they could even take off? Yep, and this was all due to a spy named Eli Cohen? Yep, uh, they, they currently have him on Netflix, played by Sasha Baron Cohen. Yep, and what happened to Ellie was that he was, you know, ultimately hanged when his cover was blown. But the thing is that that conflict, the way the Israeli forces mobilized so rapidly has set a precedent in, um, you know, world military um, circles. And no country other than the Americans have been able to, you know, achieve that very uh, strong sense of rapid mobilization or, you know, that strong policy of rapid mobilization. I mean, if you look at it this way, in Israel... Usually the lead time is two hours and two hours their soldiers are up and running, you know, pursuing the enemy. So, and this was during the six day war. This was something they learned that, you know, if we are very swift and quick, we will be able to achieve decisive victories. And this is something which has been, you know, militarily passed down to us. This was what made Grant, Sherman, uh, you know, Bandar Singh Bahadur, even the Sikh gurus and countless other generals and military officers. So, you know, uh, successive, so decisive. But the thing down here at the heart of the matter is, you know, what Sharon pointed out is that Israel is a country with a few million citizens, right? Correct. And at that time, when I think, I believe at that time, it wasn't Sadat, it was uh, Nasser who was in power. Uh, in Egypt? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Now, what I think is that either Sadat's nephew or son-in-law, one or the other, he was actually a Mossad agent. You understand what I'm saying? I do. So all the sensitive information from the top was being leaked out to Israel straight away. So what would happen as they later discovered was, you know, Nasser would sit down and give a briefing and two hours later, it would be the it would be in the hands of Mossad. 
And for almost... Yep. We have to agree on one thing. Yes. Mossad is the best of the best out there. It is the best of the best out there. You don't even see them strike. You just see the results of their strike. But you have to admit it, whether you like these Israelis or not, or whether you, you know, have a dog in the fight or not. But mm. Mossad is the best of the best. I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about intelligence gathering. I'm not talking about special operations or so-called surgical strikes. But the way they infiltrate, the way they operate, and they could be operate, you know, could be an undercover for decades, their entire lives, and you would never know. And, and, and that's the beauty of it. Because you have to understand that anybody could be a Jew. Hmm. Hmm. Hear hear me out. There are Hmm. Jews who who look like they're Eastern European. We have a large Jewish community in Eastern Europe. Yeah. Yes. You have Jews who look exactly like Arabs. Yes. Or your stereotypical Arabs in the Middle East, not the Arabs in the Northern Africa or, or let's say in Sudan or those areas, yeah? Yep. You have some Jews who have, a, let's say, African ancestry or mixed blood. Yep. You have Jews who have been in, in India for a long time. They're Indian Jews. You have Kaifeng Jews from China. Yes. Anybody could be a Jew. Mm-hmm. And that's what Mossad actually ultimately utilizes. Not exactly that. Well, if you, if you want to turn somebody, they have to be from the... Op- your 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 opposite party, yeah. You're not, going to, you're not going to find Jews in Pakistan. You're going, just going to find somebody who can turn on your side for for money or maybe honey trap them or whatever. Yes. Yeah. So this is one of the reasons why Mossad is so effective, and also because they have doesn't matter what the government is, they have always got the full support. Hmm. And I guess this is what uh, Diane, who was one of their, you know, legendary chief minister, uh, defense ministers, and uh, Sharon explained that, you know, Israel is a country with a very small population. This entire population in its lifetime is daily exposed to the horrors of warfare. And the other thing is that this population is steeped in its history and culture. It knows, even today's generations know what the Holocaust was. So this entire population has the spirit of defiance which feeds into the military and ultimately the military is, you know, spiritually strengthened by the population's expectations and that's why it's so quick. So if a soldier, like let's say a soldier, Israeli soldier is in bed in the middle of the night, their body is tired, broken, they might have been on a 58-hour combat exercise. When the call comes in, it's the fact that they share the same spirit of solidarity with their, you know, civilian brethren. It would compel them to get up and no matter what their condition, run out onto the front line. Well, the, the Israelis are really good at this. Uh, yeah, true. And if you look at it from another perspective, I mean, if you look at the Sikhs, when the Khalsa had its back against the wall, our, each and every one of our men and women were fighters, our children down to the fact, you know, look at the spirit of defiance they showed on the other hand and this is what Sadat actually said once was that you know the Islamic countries can rear down Israel because they have populations of millions hundreds of millions and Israel only has a few million 
And that's where this, uh, you know, what you were saying, this effectiveness doctrine came in, that we need to be very rapid, very swift, very fast. And it has worked in the past. We have seen it has worked in the past. I mean, look at the wars Israel has fought. If it hasn't won them outright, it hasn't lost them outright. Well, there have been a lot of, let's say, decisive victories on the, on the military field. Yep. And then on the other hand, if you look at it, if you look at the Palestinians, on the other hand, they're also manifested, animated by a same spirit of, you know, I guess, desire to fight for their, you know, people, their faith, etc., etc. But the thing is, <clears throat> on Israel's side, there is only one person making the policy, and that individual is an Israeli, right? Yeah. On the Palestinian side, and I mean, this is something we need to understand as well, if you want to put a dog in the fight or, you know, protest for the Palestinians, their interest only extends to a Palestinian sovereign state, a dual state. But we also need to remember that around them, they're ranked by several other factions who desire to keep this battle going. Okay. Yeah, yeah. other factions who desire to keep the battle. And these are international factors, yeah? Yes, and I mean, if you look at the book by Pettigrew, you know, Sikhs of the Punjab, in which she recounts her, you know, experiences with, you know, Sikh militant fighters. This was something which was, you know, constantly being brought up that whose interests are we really fighting for? I, I think you're, you're referencing back to some book that uh, it's it's important to control the, the insurgents or your adversaries ideologically rather than militarily. That's that's what I'm saying, and this is something which actually Sherman uh, actually established. This was a, do a doctrine which Sherman established, and you know this is what Sherman once explained to President Lincoln, that you know today's wars are fought where we expect the enemy to make a mistake, and Lincoln said that's right. And what Sherman actually built up upon was the fact that you know historically speaking, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, they would wait for their tactical or you know strategic mistake in the field of battle. If Providence provided a mistake made on the political front, they would be quick to exploit that. But what Sherman wanted to actually tell Lincoln was that what if we guided the enemy towards making a political mistake? Then even if he lost the military battle, at least we can subdue them politically. You understand what I mean? Yep, yep. It's, it's a case of manipulation. Now, you know, as Pettigrew notes, most of the militants in those days in the Punjab they were actually fighting among each other because each and every one of them was associated with different outfits, with different dealings, and with different associations. And, you know, without mentioning any names, she actually recounts the incident of one, you know, militant leader actually telling her that, you know, there was this uh, another militant leader who was actually, you know, under me. He went to another group, discovered that group was being bankrolled by a politician, shot at one of their leaders, only to be betrayed by the other upcoming leader. That's something that nobody has ever discussed. Nobody has ever discussed. And I guess at the same time, the same time down here, if you look at it, and this is something, you know, when Sharon actually became prime minister, he confirmed as much. Most of the intelligence regarding the PLO, how they were able to, you know, hit the PLO so hard and so fast was actually being provided by the Jordanians. True. And even towards the end of his life, Sadat had actually started, you know, expelling Soviet, uh, Soviet uh, military commanders from the Egyptian forces, the Soviet influence from Egypt, and he was providing the same intelligence down there to the Israeli, is, uh, Israelis. 
And I think we need to remember down here is that, you know, if there is a solution to this, the Palestinians can achieve that resolution, that solution only by themselves if these exterior factors are taken out, exterior actors are taken out of the equation. Okay, uh, let's talk about something that's uh, very similar mm. to this. Yes. The Irish conflict. Yep. So is it just Catholic versus Protestant over there? I think or, it's more than that. Or is it just the, the same, let's say, the colonialism that was there in the Middle East, in both cases, British or English, and then the remnants, the after effects of colonialism? Hmm. I guess that's a case of everything, really. <clears throat> it's, it's very interesting because these two geographically distinct conflicts are largely the same. Mm -hmm. But I guess one thing we need to remember on the Irish side, and this might be something you might agree or disagree with, we have the Catholic versus Protestant conflict, right? Ireland versus England. <clears throat> but we don't have any external players in this, do we? Oh, plenty of them. Well, I mean, if you look at the Palestinian conflict, I mean, this is what I'll try explaining again. There is a justification, I guess, in a way, and I'm using this term lightly, there is a justification offered by all these other countries who have a dog in the Palestinian fight. Now, most of these, you know, Palestinian fighters, we know what happened in Afghanistan, and we know how this, uh, you know, jihad wave spread out across the world during, those, during that era. <clears throat> really, at the end of the day, if you look at it, Arafat is on record saying that that wave, that fighting, that unity after Afghanistan achieved nothing for Palestine. Because really, all these foreigners came in, decided to start fighting for the people, or they said they were start, uh, fighting for the Palestinians, but they achieved nothing other than increasing bloodshed and violence. It's, it's actually very interesting because, uh, do you know... Uh that Osama bin Laden actually went to Bosnia? <laughs> yeah, I know that. I know that he traveled extensively. But I guess when you, if you look at it, even the PLO today, like what's left of it, like Hamas, or, you know, obviously there was a connection down there between Al-Qaeda and Hamas. But if you look at it today, Hamas is distancing itself from the legacy of bin Laden. And if, if I'm correct, Hamas is also democratically elected. Yes. So, I mean, you, you need to realize that it might be a case of looking at the fact that, you know, there must be external players in here who are not letting this conflict subsidize because they have, you know, a dog in the fight. They have interest to keep this fight going. Hmm. So that demands now, this, this simple question. Hmm. If the Israelis were not Jews, would the conflict be this complex and this long? That's a that's a very loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> Most very loaded. You, very, very loaded. I would say that if you look at it, you know, chronologically, when the political, territorial, and social factors are resolved, or they seem to be resolved, it's the religious factor which always reignites the conflict. So if you were the leader of the Palestinians and you had the foresight, okay, 
let's leave this conflict, let's settle for a good future for our children. You come mm-hmm. home, and the very next day, you'll be shot by somebody who thinks you made the wrong decision, you have sold them out. But that has happened, that has happened in both Israel and Palestine, hasn't it? Yeah, it has, that's why I gave the example. And it has happened with us Sikhs as well. Of course. I mean, regarding the yep. Regarding the external player um, theory, I have down here. Um, if you look at it historically, the Marathas expected the Sikhs to go out and fight Abdali in a pitched battle and die. Uh, sorry, I think I missed. I think I got disconnected. Okay, so what I'll mention is regarding the external player theory. Historically speaking, it has happened to us as well. The Marathas actually expected us before the Battle of Panipat to march against Abdali in a pitched battle and die fighting him to buy them time. And the Sikhs replied that they weren't expendable and they would use guerrilla warfare against Abdali. It has happened with us, hasn't it, that other players have expected us to sacrifice ourselves. Yep. Even today, it's the same. It's, it's the same. And... On that issue, the Sikhs had enough gumption, enough intellect at the time, the Sikh leadership, the missile sardars, to say, no, you do whatever the hell you want. You have paved the way to your own doom. We will just keep on fighting in prolonged battle. Much better. It's good to live to fight 20 days extra rather than die on one first day alone. When, when you clearly know the enemy, you know, fighting them in a pitch battle is stupid. It's not just suicide. It's stupid. That's right. Then on the other hand, if you look at it, Bandar Singh Bhadr actually turned around and told Khan Singh and the others that I'm not expecting uh, accepting a fruitless offer, offer of you know amnesty that we settled in the territories we have in the Punjab. And they said, look, why do you have a problem with this? And he told them, we don't have Lahore. Lahore has a strong Mughal presence. We don't have Multan. Multan has a strong Mughal presence. We don't have Agra. Agra has a strong Mughal presence. We don't have Delhi. Delhi has a strong Mughal presence. What we do have is, you know, parts and portions of Dwaba, Maja, Malva, and we have Sirhand. That's all we have. Don't you see that the Mughals can easily outmaneuver us, ring us, and bring us to a standstill and slaughter us right there and then? We can't accept their peace offer unless we make it on our terms, you know, bring them down to the negotiating table. Now, what Bandar Singh realized was that even though the Sikhs had forced the Mughals to the negotiating table, the Mughals weren't really going to be honest about it until or unless they were weakened significantly. However, look what happened to him, betrayed by his own side. Yep. And we have seen this happen throughout our history over and over again. Unfortunately, you are correct on this one, Mr. Singh. That, that's that's right, and I'm actually going to say that's right because you told me I'm right. But on the other hand, down here, if you look at it again, <laughs> the situation isn't so black and white that we start committing ourselves to one side. I actually uh, have some relatives in America. Yes. And uh, this is going to sound real funny, very funny. It is funny and tragic. Yep. They voted, they voted for Hillary in 2016 yep. when, when Trump won solely because they had a photo opportunity with her. <laughs> yep. They simply said she came to us, she listened to us, 
and uh, she she seemed like a good person so we voted for her so what about her, her policies what policies <laughs> so well, okay the conversation ends here mhm so this is how easily our people are swayed even the educated ones i mean that's right i mean we've been seeing a lot of these accusations being held so on twitter we have many uh, sikhs arguing that if you support palestine you can't be a sikh because you're going against the concept of every israel sovereignty and then we have uh, some of this crew who was you know supporting the idealism that guru nanak was a gender bender saying that if you support israel and you're a sikh you can't be a sikh actually you're undermining the foundations of sikhi so there is this unnecessary ugly conflict brewing on there as well for now it's a war of words but it can extend into something even more later on down the track and this is a critical time for our community anyhow coming down to the most fundamental thing down here is that if there is a individual preference then you know go for it but really the overall aim of the community should be you know the uh impartial stance now there was a period when the all india sikh student federation actually uh, approached takal takht to uh, declare the plo a terrorist organization do you know about that uh i do not know about it so from what i understand around the mid to late 80s or the early 90s to mid 90s down there there was a lot of talk that you know we're going to uh, start rearming ourselves for you know battle etc etc there were many individuals you know stipulating that we need to uh, get arms from the plo we need to learn from the plo and the federation at the time approached the kaltak and said look we want you to declare the plo a terrorist organization as far as sikhs are concerned and you know the jathedars at the time they sat down they had a review of the policies proposed and they said that we will only take an impartial stance between both players now okay hold on yep the conflict let's try to imagine ourselves in the conflict 1947 the sikhs were successful in carving a state of their own there is pakistan to the west india to the east and yes. uh, this so called sikh state let's just just call it punjab yeah okay yep now punjab has a significant hindu minority and a muslim minority so let's say it has a sikh majority let's say yes so it could be 60 20 20 or could be 50 25 25 whatever yep if though those muslims started a guerrilla warfare war against us mm. they they could claim that they are the inhabitants of this land for centuries and sikhs only arrived on the scene in the late 1700s yep so they have a legitimate claim to be the sovereign sovereigns of this land the hindus yep. have the exact same claim that we have been here for thousands of years this is our land yep the sikhs would have the same claim that we are the sons of the soil we have been here for thousands of years we you know we chose to be sikhs in the let's say in the past 2 3 4 centuries yep. but this is this is our home hmm. we have so exclusively this, defended it yeah so all these let's say these three conflicting parties each having their own interest what would the situation be like i mean that's right if the you, sikhs the yep you would have india supporting the hindus yep you would have pakistan supporting the muslims and nobody supporting the sikhs nobody supporting the sikhs and i guess this is where we have to realize that we rather than take any sides and risk ourselves being subsumed by the victor 
we would surely set them against each other and arm ourselves for a prolonged conflict against both. You are giving me the meme of you know, somebody rubbing their hands and a beard and laughing vigorously. <laughs> Behind it, a curtain. It would, it would have to be. I mean, getting back to what I initially said, and this was something put on Twitter, I think the handle was Sodagas and can't really remember. And the argument down here was something which actually made me, you know, do a double take and it made me think that it was a good argument. And the argument was that, you know, if we keep on saying that, uh, you know, the Palestine, uh, the Israel-Palestinian conflict, let's call it the Gaza conflict, is only, uh, you know, one side, the Palestinians suffering everything. How can we ignore that Israel is a recognized nation? And even if it isn't, it has managed to exert, you know, territorial control and has that right of territorial control. Can we ignore the history of the Jews, the sufferings they actually encountered? The sufferings they encountered. Uh, oh, okay. So we are getting down to some serious questions now. Okay. Yep. We are both, let's say, descendants of uh, Scythian invaders. Would you agree? Yep. Scythians, yep. Yeah. Or the, the theory exists. We not are not too sure because there's not, not enough DNA evidence. Okay. Yep. The theory exists. So that would mean that through my ancestry, I would actually have a claim on southern Russia today. The area <laughs> of the Caspian Sea of, of yep. modern Kazakhstan or Russia. Yep. Can I go there and claim it's my land? No. I could probably dug up some old corpses and say, look, I have the same DNA. These are my ancestors. This is my land. Mm -hmm. Can I? No. So, okay, that's fine. Let's say there is another theory that there is the ocean and RN invasion of India. Mm. So if a South Indian comes to Punjab today and claims your land that this is my land, would you give it to him? No. Okay. Uh, there was the uh, invasion of let, Mongol tribes all towards, let's say, into China, into West Asia, into Southwest Asia, well into, let's say, Iraq and all the way to Egypt. Yes. So if some somebody could go back to, let's say, Kazakhstan today and say, this is my homeland, you guys invaded and conquered us, would the Kazakhs just, let's say, retreat back into Mongolia? No. So, going through the same logic, do the Israelis really have a claim to the land that they left for whatever reasons 2,000 years ago? No, they don't have a fundamental claim in the sense that they can go and say that, look, we, you know, we, we were once the, you know, residents of this land. Our forefathers actually were here before you guys. But the thing is that they have done it through the right of arms and sovereignty. So the right of conquest? The right of conquest. Now, okay, so, you know, Parpur Singh Balbir made that uh, famous remark in his speeches back in the 80s. Shri Mukhpani, or Grieb Nivaj Shastra ka dine raj raj binana taram chalehe taram bina sabdale malehe. Yep. Yep, the thing is that he never actually explained, and this was a massive mistake, I think, in what, from how I see it, that where this, where these lines, this verse was actually derived from, it's from the Gurbilas Patshe Dasvi. Some say of Sukha Singh, some say of Koer Singh. The fact is that it's a part of the Gurbilas literature and we also have these blow-ups now and then where people claim it's a part of the Dasam Granth but are never able to prove it. But the thing down there is 
in the context it's used among us today, and this is, you know, where they are looking at everything else which is wrong with the Gurbilas series, the fact is that if Guru Gobind Singh says that Shri or Grib Nawaj from the you know mouth of the respected Guru, we need to understand something here that we treat it as a definition, as a meaning that Raj or sovereignty is static, right? So what I mean is you have something called Raj, I come and beat you up and take the Raj through the strength of my arms, my forces, my military power, okay? You get where I'm where I'm coming from? I think I do. Yep. So we're saying Raj is static, but I think the Guru was saying that Raj is fluid. It's always going to be with you and then someone else, you and someone else. And if you acquire it, you acquire it through the strength of arms, then you must also preserve it through the strength of arms. A lot of people do think this way. Uh, we know it from the conversations we had. People think that once you have established your Raj, that's that's it. Yeah, that's the final step. Final step, but it's the first step. Mm -hmm. And I mean, one thing we need to look at is the fact that you know, after the Guru's Banda Singh Bhadra and Wab Kapoor Singh, they actually sent missionaries all over the Punjab and beyond to convert people to Sikhi, so they could expand their you know regions down there, their territory down there, Khalsa Raj down there. True. And these fundamentals of you know statecraft we're beginning to ignore. Another fact is that you know, okay. We can take the Guru Granth Sahib and, you know, misinterpret verses. Now, recently, this has been done to argue that the Gurus were above gender, so they were gender fluid. <laughs> and it's shameful to see that leading media organizations, Sikh media organizations, have picked up on this argument and are spotting it. And there's one in particular, which is trying to translate the Guru Granth Sahib into a gender fluid English. It's, it's actually quite interesting because I think nearly all languages are gender-based here. Yep. And I guess the thing down here that's being argued is that, you know, the gurus wrote in a feminine sense, so they transcended gender. Now, let's let's just take... Well, I mean, you know, let's take Musa, he sings from a woman's perspective sometimes, doesn't he? Some songs, yes. So when, yep. so when Musawala gets up there and sings from a woman's perspective... Does he become a woman? Well, you have to ask him. I don't know. I don't like to okay. assume so what people I don't know. <laughs> Do we so okay, fine then let's let's just imagine it like this. You know, if you're a singer and you sing from a woman's perspective, do you become a woman or do you lose your gender at the time of that singing? <laughs> you see what I mean? I mean, the perspective the gurus are providing is a bit different. So you have, you know, society with its stereotype of a masculine perspective, which is hard, solid, rough. Then you have the feminine perspective, which is believed to be more cultured. The gurus took that device and wrote it exactly like that. You know, that's that's one way of looking at it down there. <clears throat> so the point really being is that if you look at it from, you know, misquoted or misreferenced and miscontextualized text, you would expect the Jews to actually inculcate a paradise on earth and you would expect something similar from the Palestinians. You would expect the Sikhs to do a Halemi Raj, but the thing is, does the other side recognize that logic? No, they don't. I mean, today in Pakistan and India, you have texts being published which, you know, against proven history, they argue that the Sikhs were, you know, uh, tyrants. 
or for them we were. That's that's the thing. I mean, if you look at the British intelligence reports, it says that Maharaja Dalip Singh wants to come back to the Punjab and Sikh sport is coming back. Some Muslim sport is coming back, but the Hindus, especially the higher caste, don't want to live under Khalsa Raj again. Yep, true. And this is where the religious root of the conflict lies down here. Now, okay, so we have Banda Singh Bhadar. Banda Singh Bhadar had a habit of, you know, destroying and dismantling caste. And we know that caste is also a religious belief. And it's, I believe it, it's a similar non-black and white issue with the Israelis and the Palestinians. So with the Palestinians, they have this thing that, you know, some of them might be believing that they need to rule the entire world as a caliphate. And then you probably have similar sentiments among the Jews as well. The thing is they need to learn to coexist. And we, and even us Sikhs, we need to take that example that, you know, we need to learn to coexist with our principles and their principles without conceding any ground on our principles. Yep. Principle. Yeah, okay. I'd like to bring another point here. Yes. The unconditional support given to Israel by many countries of the West. Yep. That's a Passive point. That's a massive support that they can say, okay, these, these countries are behind us. We can do whatever we want. Hmm. The, the first thing is like uh, the so-called Christians in America. Yep. The Jesus, Jesus Christ is only going to come back if this whole area is under the control of Jews. <laughs> yep. That's, that's their belief. Hmm. So they, they will sense they will send their sons to die fighting wars they are not theirs to fight because they believe that's the only way the, the second coming of Jesus is going to arrive or manifest itself. Yep, eventuate. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, so I think uh, uh, in, in, in some previous podcasts we have discussed that how Donald Trump chose a fundamentalist Christian Mike Pence as a running mate to get the Christian world. Yes. And he also moved the embassy to Jerusalem to satisfy. Yep. Hmm. You, you, you see my point? Yes, I see. I see your point. I see your point. And it seems to be an exploitation of uh, common sentiments, really, to acquire brownie points for oneself while ignoring what the devastating result of those actions might be somewhere else. And if if you go to the so-called conservative American websites, maybe a news channel or somebody's page, when they report that this many children have been killed in in Palestine or Gaza or West Bank, they simply say Hamas should stop using women and children as human shield. Mm -hmm. If a missile lands on me, I I could be in my house eating my food or maybe doing my study or maybe walking in the streets. I get killed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The bomb's yep. not going to the bomb's not going to stop itself mid in the air and think, okay, there goes Mr. Singh. He's just minding his own business. I'm going. I'm not going to kill him today. <laughs> yeah. So people try to have their own ideas about the about the conflict without really understanding it. You're right. You got a strong point in there, and I guess it's the same with Arab Sikh lot on Twitter on social media as well. They have no, you know, profound comprehension of the conflict, what it entails, and what its future might be. But everyone runs to paste their own, um, you know, perspectives on it. And I guess one of the biggest things, which is you know, seen down here now. Let's look at it this way: 
Back in the day, we had Sikh guerrilla fighters. And, you know, the population was always subjected to tyranny. And is subjected to tyranny wherever guerrilla fighters are because guerrilla fighters are exclusively in direct contra uh, contact with the masses they're trying to liberate or, you know, orient towards a particular goal. Yep. It also comes down to the fact, though, is that do the masses spot the guerrillas as a first line of action or as an ultimate line of action? And do the masses actually support the guerrillas out of their, let's say, let their support for the ideas the guerrillas are fighting for or just out of fear? Yep, that's the big thing. Now, if you look at the Israel-Palestine conflict in Israel, the polls actually substantiate every time they're taken that many Israelis prefer the two-nation theory. there's them and there's the Palestinians similarly it's the same in Palestine but then down here we have groups like Hamas which have their own perspective on the matter well of course extremists are going to have extremist views yeah I mean from what I understand is that historically speaking when Bangladesh was liberated they never disbanded the Mukti uh, Mukti Bani did they the Mukti Bahini now and what's happened now is that elements of that have broken away and formed their own little cells, which are currently, you know, giving the government a massive headache in Bangladesh. Yep. Because they, yep, because they claim that they are they were fighting for the masses and are still fighting for the masses. And I guess this is where democracy comes into direct scrutiny because is the current mode of democracy allowing politicians and so-called guerrilla fighters the ground to collect evidence to substantiate their views, or is it just all heresy that they're fighting for the masses? Well, a lot of leaders of the, let's say, major democratic countries, they always claim that I'm working for the people. But are they really? That's the thing. That's the thing. We need to scrutinize these things. And I think rather than choosing sides, Sikhs should step back. Okay, yep, we can see what the human cost is. We need to, you know, work towards mitigating the human cost, even if we don't have a dog in that fight. But we need to take lessons from that for the future. Take lessons from that for the future. Okay. I'll ask you a question, and uh, I think we need to talk about it for for a couple of minutes at least. Israel has a sizable Muslim minority. Okay. And they have a very high fertility. Yep. In the next hundred years, the, the population of both the Jews and the Muslims could be on par. Yep. In, in Israel. Yep. In Punjab, the growing migrant population and the, they have, you know, they have large families and who are born here. Hmm. They are also, let, let's say, a demographic issue for the future. Yes. How is Israel going to solve it? Or let's say tackle this? Yep. Or let's use a better word. How is Israel going to interpret this issue? And how yep. are we going to deal? That's the thing. I mean, we can't exclusively follow Israel, can we? Well, we, we can just you know, learn a few things from them, but we can't follow them. Follow we anybody. Follow. Anybody. And I guess the thing down here is the most logical uh, outlook would be that we need to look at the you know caste demographic of the you know growing migrant population in Punjab and see if we can convert them to Sikhi. 
But then there are other issues down there which have no precedent, so we can't emulate any you know resolutions to solve those issues anyhow. So we need to start thinking up our own issue, uh, our own resolutions to these issues. Well, the, the cultural pollution they will bring in, that'd be too, too hard to swallow. But the thing is that we seem to be focused on the outside world. I actually find it quite funny. Hmm. That you just run run around, let's say, supporting the underdog. When hmm. for them, that's when for them you don't even exist. I mean, the thing down here is we talk of sovereignty. We need to get sovereignty. We need to get territorial sovereignty. What are we going to do when we get the territorial sovereignty? What so will we like do? A, when... Yep, it's, it's one of those old uh, feminist ideas that are not there. Too many men who are CEOs and everything. So start your own company. Start your own company. Become the CEO. It's like I don't want to do it. That's too much work. I mean, this is something Patton actually pointed out, and I can relate to that. You know, Patton was actually criticized for inculcating, you know, ex-Nazi officials in his, uh, you know, political um changes whenever he actually conquered some territory in, you know, in and around Europe. And one day, a journalist got in his face. Now, Patton was someone who was very abusive as well. You know, he had a pretty foul mouth. Yeah, foul mouth. Um, yeah. Yep. Patton was walking around with his, you know, helmet and his whip in his hand and the man came along and he's like, why are you putting Nazis in, you know, positions of power? And Patton asked him, so what's your problem, son? And he said, you know, the chief accountant of such an... But the fact is he was sympathizing under pressure. He never actually did anything or planned anything which could actually, you know, justify him being a war criminal. Rather, he was being forced to follow orders. The guy didn't stop harassing Patton, so Patton actually turned around and told him, okay, look, that man is fired. You're the chief accountant from tomorrow. If you don't turn up, I'm going to blow your brains out. The guy <laughs> pretty much left the whole region straight away with his family in a few hours. <laughs> you, so you, you see... You, you want you, the ability, but you don't want the responsibility. You, you don't want the responsibility. There's the thing. You want the ability. You don't want the responsibility. Now... This sport of the underdog really is going to cost us something. Okay, let's look at it this way. The Sikh gurus never spotted any, you know, underdog. They could have spotted a lot of underdogs, but they never did. Nope. They spotted the best man standing at the time. Obviously, Dara Shiko and uh, <clears throat> Kosrao, they actually did things which made them, you know, underdogs. But by that time, the gurus had stopped spotting them because they had seen that these men were weak. But Guru Tegh Bahadur never sent, you know, Sikh forces to spot the Ahoms in, Bang uh, you know, current modern-day Bengal. And he never actually stepped in to, you know, spot the Rajputs or the Marathas whenever they, you know, now and then got angry with the Mughals and started striking turns of defiance. Because they knew that these elements, these parties, these coalitions were really not, you know, someone who had a heart in the fight to better the future. They were only doing it for themselves. At the same time, we really need to see that, you know, when we spot the underdog, what is the underdog leadership's proposition for the future? What are they aiming for? Well, you, you're asking me a question that can be answered in a single sentence or it can be answered in two books. Okay, I mean, okay, let's, let's just look at it this way. Tomorrow, Palestine is made and it, you know, it actually decides to coexist with Israel. Few years later, we have Palestine now bombing the hell out of Israel. What's our reaction going to be then? <laughs> so, 
you know, we need to learn to live with the consequences of actions and see them through. Cause and consequence, that's not taught to our children, bro. Not at least in Punjab. That's the thing, I mean, and we really need to tell our activists, you know, sporting this fight, that, you know, look, guys, step back. Step back and start considering the implications here of what you're doing. On the geopolitical frontier, you know, Israel is spotted so heavily because it's one of those few countries in the Middle East which acts as a bulwark against fundamentalism. You understand yeah. what I mean? Yeah, it, it, it does. Yeah, I have to agree on this point. And it's the same with India. And we really need to understand these geopolitical strate uh, strategies, these lessons of fear to progress forward in the future. It's not a case of, you know, sporting underdogs. And tomorrow, if those underdogs don't sport us, what are we going to get out of this? Okay. Uh, let's put it in a simple way. Yeah. So you do, uh, let's say, martial arts, yeah? Yes. I get into the, a physical fight with you. I am the aggressor. By using your training and your skills, you beat the shit out of me. Okay. Now, I'm sitting on the side of a street, weeping, crying in pain that, look, this guy beat me up. Yep. A, a bystander who hadn't seen the fight could say, okay, this guy got beat up. He's the victim. But am I really yep. the victim? I mean, that's you need to understand that as well in real life as well. Okay, so if someone comes and attacks me with a knife, now this is what happens. This is what happens in the Western world, and it's pretty stupid. Someone comes to kill me with a knife and I fight back and bloody the guy and break his bones and throw him away. Chances are I'll be in trouble in court because they will ask me to prove his intention to kill me. How can I prove his intention to kill me? All with I see is knife. a guy coming all I see is a guy coming towards me waving a knife. And this has happened in the past. This has happened in the past where policemen have been suspended because the courts in the courts the prosecution has argued, Oh well, wait a second, just because he had a knife, it did not confirm his intent. He and was just will, offering you a salad. And the judge will look at the guy's past track record, find them the track record is good or it's got something about mental health. That's it. The guy's gone, released. So convenient. And on the other hand, the real victim is left to play, you know, left to pick up his new role as an aggressor shunned by society, while the real aggressor is now the newfound darling of the victim brigade. <laughs> it's, it's, it's reality. It's reality. And it happens with the IRC as well. Now, I mean... People making these very provocative comments online, you know, Guru Nanak being a gender bender, etc., 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 you know, they're the darlings of the victim brigade. Now, uh, okay, I, I like to use this, uh, this, uh, this, okay, this phrase, uh, the victim pyramid, who ranks higher? <laughs> yep. Imagine it, the victim pyramid. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing. And, you know, the victim pyramid should be something which nations and groups should keep in mind that, you know, you have to see things through to the end. Can a war of attrition wear down Israel where Palestine is concerned? Can Hamas actually wear down Israel? I don't think it's possible. No. The thing is, a war of attrition is usually successful when it's a... I guess a war of attrition is one of those strategies. You need to look at it this way. You know, when the Normandy beach happening, uh, beach landings happened, or when Grant was at Shiloh or Waterloo, 
you press the enemy so hard that they actually expend all their resources and manpower in fighting you. So that's a war of attrition which you're conducting successfully. Mm-hmm. Can smaller communities do that? Yes, they can. We have seen it with the Sikhs in the past, you know, fighting all over the Punjab, the Mughals were heavily stretched, etc., etc., and making that one strategic attack to gain victory. Right, a smaller community can wage a successful war of attrition. Now, of course, what I'm saying is flying in the face of all military logic, which has been passed down to us, but military and political logic is something which changes daily with each new you know, revolution and conflict. You need to realize that the, you know, the entire world can be against Israel, but Israel is a whole community, a whole nation on a war footing. And, you know, this is what Netanyahu told Obama in 2006. You can see it online when he actually stormed into the White House and he told him that, you know, Israel is the only home for the Jewish people and we will fight to the end for it, even if it's against you. I, I think they, they have uh, what they call the Samson option. The Samson, yeah. the, the Samson doctrine, I think. I think it's uh, derived from an old story that uh, Samson actually used. Uh, uh, okay, I think that was the guy who had his powers in his hair. Yes, and his hair was cut off. Yeah, so he, uh, you know, his hair grew back and uh, his powers returned to him. And he actually, let's say, he actually brought the all, the entire building onto himself, killing his enemies and himself in the process. Yes. So he really say, okay, if you, if you try to destroy us, we will destroy everybody and commit suicide in, in, in the process. Yep. So they have they have got, let's say, nuclear capabilities. So that's the doctrine they follow, or at yeah. least some of the leaders follow. Mm-hmm. I think the only way these conflicts can be resolved resolved is if you get into the minds, the hearts, and minds of both belligerents. What do they actually want? It's like going into a bar full of people holding a grenade and say, "I'll I'll pull the pin, I'll kill myself, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll take all of you with me." And I guess the fact that this isn't being resolved. So, you know, we have so many very wealthy, financially well-off Muslim countries with a stake in the conflict. No one wants to piss them off. And then you have militarily powerful countries who no one wants to piss uh, piss them off, sporting Israel. So you see the Muslim countries are sporting uh, Palestine. The well-armed countries, the Western world is sporting Israel. No one wants to piss each other off. And that's where there is a stalemate while innocent people die on both sides. Something really interesting happened in, uh, uh, not too long ago. The yes. Armenian-Azerbaijan conflict. Yep. Azerbaijan, a Sunni Muslim country. Yes. The drone warfare they carried out against the Christian Armenians was unmatched. It destroyed Armenian defenses and Armenian army. Yep. All the drones were provided to them by the Israelis. Oh. You see how complex these things are? That's that's the thing. Everyone's got a stake in that fight. And I guess if our lot are going to sit in and say we are fighting for a Halemi Raja ourselves and we need to support the underdog, just remember it isn't as you know simple as you guys doing it. Because what's the worst that can happen if we acquire our own state? Let's say, for example, to, hypothetically, we do acquire our own country. And one of these individuals becomes the president or the prime minister. Next thing you know, the last thing we want is our sons and daughters marching off to fight in a conflict all these miles away in which we have no stake to start with. The very first thing they, they will do, they'll start, start a langar in Palestine. 
<laughs> and then secondly, they'll come after guys like us. No, yeah, they'll do it simultaneously. Yeah, they'll, they'll do it simultaneously. They'll cook us up. <laughs> the, yeah, <laughs> they will cook us up. But I guess summer, uh, summarily, you know, summarily, we really need to be pretty careful in the conclusions we are drawing from this conflict. I would say to the listeners and appeal to our Sikh people in general, understand the conflict before taking a side. Understand it deeply, understand it profoundly, you know, comprehend all the issues at stake in this conflict. And do not, do not try to go with the flow. Do not go with the flow at all, because tomorrow, chances are we will be in the same position. Chances are we are going to be in the same, well, let's say the same, same situation. I was going to do something else, but uh, I'll, I better wash my mouth. Okay, so let me let me just give you a few examples down here. So say you're a you know, say you're an innocent Patan with your multiple wives, with your you know hundred camels, and you're living near Peshawar, near the Khyber Pass. And when you were a child, you remember people going to demolish the you know their bar sahib in the Punjab. Your fellow Patans, you have taken no part in that conflict, right? You and your multiple wives. And Wives one day, <laughs> okay, I'll let that one pass. I'll let that one pass. <laughs> and what happens one day is that your village, your nomadic settlement, you're forced to vacate and leave everything beyond because you witness Sikh soldiers rapidly marching towards, you know, Khyber Pass. Hmm. Right? Yeah. What's your fault? What's your fault in all this? Well, it's hard to answer. I'm innocent, but my home isn't being invaded, so I will fight to defend it. You will fight to defend it. Now, the fact is that your people started everything. You started invading the subcontinent. The Sikhs are Sikhs were defending themselves. So now, on the other side, you have someone like me who's growing up in this conflict, and we are rebuilding their barsab, and we decide we can't have this again. Because we are now in a stronger position, we need to push our borders out and seal them off. So right. you were actually yep, talking so I, about a multi-generational conflict. A multi-generational conflict. And it still continues today. It still continues. It's on social media now and in, you know, proselytizement. So if I am a Palestinian who's, let's say, running, uh, let's say, a fruit shop, let's say. Yes. I get killed by a bomb. My yep. son would naturally, my son or my, my daughters, my children, my grandchildren would naturally have sympathy for Hamas. Hmm, hmm. If I'm, an Israeli, if I'm an Israeli who has lost family members or friends to, let's say, an attack or of any sort, a suicide bombing, uh, let's say, a raid or a rocket attack, I will naturally be indifferent to the suffering of the Palestinians. Now, what I'm going to say down here is going to be pretty funny, but it might be offensive as well. <clears throat> we have multiple accounts on social media putting up all these quotes from, you know, Pratan Grant's D, uh, Dasam Grant, etc., etc. War is the way of the things. War is the cast of the things. Things do this. The thing is made for war. Kalsa Pant is made for war. You know, first sign of a gun and they shit their pants. It's actually quite interesting because if you see, if you ask a Sikh that, okay, or what have you, have you done to discipline yourself? 
because war is not it's not fought by fat untrained soldiers <laughs> hear me out down here you know even if it's not un even if they're trained you know into something you know first sign of war they'll piss their pants and run for it man there's so many things i want to say right now but i cannot Look, let's let's just let's just take it as an example. When they act so tough up there, that I have knowledge of this grant, I have knowledge of that grant. You must use so and so principle. You must use so and so principle. You're a hack. You're a trit. La 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 la. You know, you you lit, literally think that these guys must be exploding with anger down there. You know, their chandatura the malas must be getting pretty heated up. Their chuckers are coming out. They must be reading Chandiri Var straight away. But the thing down here you need to remember is that. The real cost of war is never in the poetry of war. The real cost of war is something you witness. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Have no, just you getting, ever... getting, getting back to the those two illustrations I wanted to make, those two examples I gave down here, you know, the real okay. cost of the war is always on the ground and not by the people taking sides. The real cost is suffered by the people on the ground. The civilians, you could say. The civilians, that's the thing. It's the, it's the, and the soldiers, the soldiers as well. We can't forget the citizen soldiers fighting today. Have you ever had a conversation with a special forces soldier? Yes, I have had multiple conversations, but the fingers down there, when you ask a soldier about this conflict, you ask an Israeli paratrooper about it, they're going to say there's no way it can end without one side, you know, culminating in defeat. You ask a you know, Hamas fighter and they're going to say that we are going to wipe them out. That's the thing which we need to understand, that what's the rationale being given by both sides? The leadership and the fight is on both sides. If one side is saying we are going to wipe them out, the other side, of course, will feel justified in doing what it does. The Gursoba gives us a potent example. You know that the Rangers around, around Anandapur, they used to swear waking up every morning in their mosques that they would wipe the Sikhs out. And they had a village in which they used to concentrate and they gave great aid to Rustam Khan, even though he wasn't able to win over the Sikhs. Guru Gobind Singh actually ordered their entire village demolished and them expelled from the Shivalik Hills. Mm. That's, that's what the Gursoba tells us, right? Now, on the other hand, you know, we have Banda Singh Badr, where, you know, there were individuals who would not stop. I mean, Sadora, Samana, they were put to the death. You know, their territory was taken, their sovereignty destroyed. Were they wrong? I wouldn't say they were wrong. They were fighting against an enemy which had already made their intention known. It's always the leadership which has to think about this. I mean, during the Bosnian-Serbian conflict, you know, the Bosnians were on the worst side of it. Except their leadership decided that, look, we will settle for a peace negotiation, peace resolution, peaceful resolution, only when we've acquired some strategic gains. But we will settle for peace straight away, even though the other Islamic countries around them, we're telling them to keep on fighting. Bosnia today has still got a sizable population. That's, that's the thing down here. That's the thing we need to actually understand. All these things we need to comprehend rather than rushing in blindly to spot players in a conflict which has nothing to do with us. Yep, nothing to do with us. You, you don't need to take sides because it has got nothing to do with you. And if you, if you do need to voice your opinion, 
first, please try to understand what you're talking about. And what we can learn about it for our own future. Yeah, for our own future, if we are Sikhs first. I mean, that's the thing down here. I mean, when Maharaja Dalip Singh wanted to come back to the Punjab, there were special brigades formed to assist him, you know, take out rebellions, etc., etc. Professor Gurmukh Singh and the Lahore Singh Sabha never spotted them. Because they knew that conflict was unnecessary. Secondly, they never wanted to take any sides in any conflict regarding the British. Even though, you know, Sikhs were entering the military, this was something the Lahore Singh Sabha wasn't really proud of at the time because, you know, they didn't really see the armed forces, British armed forces, as being conducive to the Sikhs. And you also have to remember that uh, supporting the Leap Singh would have been like nostalgia. Nostalgia with nothing viable, you know. I mean, he would have come back, the rule of one would have been back again down the line. The same thing which happened with Maharaja Ranjit Singh would have happened again with the Leap Singh. Well, in much worse circumstances. In much worse circumstances. And that's the same issue down here we're having with the Israel-Palestinian conflict down here, that we seem to be sporting players on both sides without understanding what's in it for them and why they're fighting. I mean, like I gave the example down here, if a Pathan says, if a, you know, radical Muslim or a Hindu Rajput or Maratha says that we're going to wipe the Sikhs out, and this is back during the days of her ancestors, would we say that our ancestors were unjustified in defending themselves down to the extreme? Well, there is no answer to this. That's the thing. I mean, if we want to draw parallels, fine, then we can draw the parallels that, you know, Palestinians are underdogs, we're underdogs. But let's also draw parallels between the foe and us to try understanding what the opponent is trying to do. Well, you, you have to know your enemy. That, that's the first step, Benzu. And the other thing down here, I guess, is that, you know, the human cost is something which we are both really concerned about. But the fact is we need to look at something else. To end this conflict, we need to put the human cost to the side because that's just a consequence and not the root problem itself. Okay, uh, I think we have done about an hour and a half. Okay. Answer mm -hmm. me this because I, I think you, you, can do, uh, you can answer it better than me or yes. the listeners. Yes. The Syrian conflict is nearing its end. Yep. Do you think that there's going to be a massive influx of battle-trained jihadis who are going to leave Syria and they might find a new conflict to involve, getting themselves involved into, could be, could be in Gaza or something? I believe that's happened because there is a pattern down here. This is what's going to keep on happening and happening. I mean, it was the same with the Israelis, except they decided to, you know, upgrade these individuals and inculcate them in their uh, armed forces. This was when Israel was first formed. Okay, so the point I've made, okay, hear me out. Yep. If, if those fighters, let's say, move into Gaza or West Bank or, let's say, Palestine, hmm. the Palestinians are at benefit, let's say, Hamas are at benefit, because they would yep. get trained soldiers who are ideologically motivated. Yes. The Israelis can also benefit from it because then they will have a legitimate excuse to, let's say, increase their their aggression. Yep. You see what I mean? Yes, I see what you mean, that there is a irresponsibility of a particular leadership which allows another leadership to get away with its own irresponsibility.
I mean, so, look at it from this perspective down here. Do we both agree that 9-11 was a massive sin? A massive sin. Yep, it was a massive sin. But who See, carried because... it out? Nobody knows. <laughs> well, that's the conspiracy theory. But anyway, can we say that the Americans were unjustified in expanding their bases out to the world and trying to defend their country? Uh, well, that's, that, that depends on your understanding of the of the person who's being asked this question. They, somebody could say, okay, there was there was a case that, that these countries were actually, actually supporting these people. Let's say they invaded Afghanistan. So people say, okay, Al-Qaeda, they are trained fighters, they are training camps, whatever, madrasas, whatever, blah, 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 blah. There is a reason to for a military, let's say, campaign against those people. Okay. But the invasion of Iraq, would people agree with that? Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's the thing. It's not as black and white as, as it is made out to be. But the fact is that in the long run, countries, we need to accept this better reality. Countries are justified in when, in doing what they do to defend themselves. Of course, there's the issue of the... Yep. Okay. It's actually something... Okay. You know what a false flag is, yeah? Yes. So let's say you... Okay. Let's say that you have your intelligence come again that some terrorist group or let's say some foreign army or some non-state actor is going to carry out a terrorist attack on your soil. Yep. But you know that in the long run, it's a new benefit because that will give you an, a better excuse for military action or let's say an invasion or something. And that's going to benefit you in the long run. Would yep. you let that attack happen? Well, I mean, I wouldn't. But there are people who will. I mean, the fact down here is that when we're saying countries are justified in defending themselves, we need to actually understand, you know, whether the justification is valid or not, it doesn't matter. The fact is that whoever has the power at the time can justify whatever they do. Because there is an acquisition on Vladimir Putin that he actually let the Moscow apartment bombings happen because that would give him an excuse to invade Chechnya. Hmm, 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 hmm. I mean, what can we expect from them anyway? But on the other hand, down here, we need to consider some things down here as well. That, you know, regarding the um, scenarios we have discussed, our lot need to take a step back. A massive step back and think who's the foe, who's the ally, who's the opponent, and what we can learn from anything or everything. It was, if it was entirely up to me, I would just stay silent and I would just observe and learn. That was what Washington actually uh, emphasized, you know, after he left his presidency, that, you know, we need to learn rather than pick sides. Unfortunately, when we pick sides, we're retarding our development. Now, it's easy to argue that the gurus picked sides. The gurus picked sides where it was very convenient for the Sikhs. Because we were living in the same geographical area under the same circumstances and under the same, uh, let's say, uh, regime, the Mughal Empire. Now, before I wrap up, there's a very prominent Sikh bookstore in the, you know, UK. And you remember, oh, it's been a long time now, when Jeremy Corbyn was running for Prime Minister? Yeah, of course. And uh, <laughs> now, I guess when we say 
that some of the slots of history is too sacred, they also end up violating their own principles, but they can get away with it because, you know, they have a lot of excuses. Let's just say that they have some sort of a parent they can justify themselves. Anyhow, this bookstore on social media put up a picture of Guru Gobind Singh and argued that just because Guru Gobind Singh sported Bahadur Shah, who was the better man, we should be sporting Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> and now the fact is that whenever anyone told him that the Guru sported Bahadur Shah as a matter of expediency, you know, that, you know, to get the Sikhs reprieve, they sort of blocked them and banned them. And then, you know, coincidentally, what happened a few days later? That history of Corbyn's anti-Semite remarks came out. Yeah, I remember that. Yep. So, you know, imagine them as being a Sikh leadership, that bookstore. I'll give you the example. They had a photo opportunity with Hillary. And they suddenly became Democrats. The thing is, and how does it affect all the people following them? You know, that's that's something you need to think about. And we really, really need to be careful who we spot, why we spot them, how we spot them, and when we spot them, and where we spot them. And uh, I'm actually surprised that you haven't mentioned the J-word in the entire podcast. The J-word? Yeah. Oh, well, yes. Uh, I mean, I can give examples, but, man, it's depressing down here anyway. I mean, she <laughs> slapped everyone anyhow. So, you know, what's the point when everyone's feeling slapped down here? You know, like, it's it's the usual, you know, affair we have. Get them in the Gurdwaras, feed them langar, chuck them a whole bunch of resolutions and things we want them to do. And they say, no, langar bhi kha jande, photo bhi kicha jande, thwadi ki re gai. Thwadi yam vota bhi le jande. Thwadi vota bhi le jande. And, you know, you can imagine, I mean, I'm sure these people have read the history of the Sikhs in the past 80, 90 years. They know we don't really think we just run in blindly into battle. She likes us. I'm going to vote for her. Thought process. <laughs> that's that's the thought process down here. Anyhow, thank you for listening. And hopefully people do learn that, you know, we need to profoundly contemplate everything before we actually start committing ourselves to something. And really, guys, just because a politician meets you, don't forget to ask about their policies. Why do you Yes. And scrutinize them, scrutinize them. And I mean, by scrutinizing, we don't mean physically scrutinize them. You know, if the guy's on a wheelchair, if his brain's much better than a guy whose body is very fine, then, you know, obviously go for the guy on the wheelchair. I will hate to be misinterpreted. Scrutinize their their policies. (laughs) That's the thing. That's the thing. Okay, then, until next time, Wahiguruji Kakalsa. Wahiguruji Kakalsa.